Today's episode is brought to you by Claire Fuller's The Memory of Animals, a beautiful and searing novel of memory, love, survival, and octopuses. Says Lydia Yuknovich, The Memory of Animals creates a world within a world where a young woman marine biologist faces off with a global pandemic and the hopes for a vaccine by diving into her own past. She might retrieve some fragment that could secure self-preservation as well as, if not humanity, then at least the human heart. The Memory of Animals is out now from Tin House. Today's conversation with poet Megan Fernandez, I'm particularly excited to share because of the ways she weaves together the personal, the poetic, and the geopolitical, and also because the aesthetics or poetics that she herself values, that she herself embraces and foregrounds, are qualities that are not usually put forth as virtues. And her preferences reveal something about the aesthetics and poetics that are put forth as obviously, quote-unquote, good ones, skilled ones. And it reveals a politics behind those sought-after qualities that we might not have seen before, a politics we might not otherwise embrace. Today's conversation also explores notions of home and belonging, but from within a poetics of dislocation, a diasporic poetics. And perhaps most of all, this is a border-crossing conversation and collection, one that refuses the confines of nation and nation-states, that sides with forces like love and joy that refuse the boundaries between people, between countries, even between species. Lots of writers and thinkers are mentioned today, from past Between the Covers guest, Karthika Nair, to Mina Alexander, to Banu Kapil. And as usual, I've included the many references that come up today in the email that goes out to supporters, which includes what I discovered in preparation for the conversation with Megan, what we refer to or explore together, and where you might go once you're done listening. There are many other possible gifts and benefits of transforming yourself from a listener to a listener supporter, whether the bonus audio archive with contributions from everyone from Jory Graham to Alice Oswald, Dion Brand to Christina Sharp, to the Tin House Early Readership Program, where you receive 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, and many other things, often things offered by past guests themselves in the hopes that you will support the show. You can check it all out at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's episode with Megan Fernandez. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. 
had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition, was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, poet Megan Fernandez, has a PhD in English from the University of California, Santa Barbara, and an MFA in poetry from Boston University, and is currently associate professor of English at Lafayette College, where she teaches courses on poetry, creative nonfiction, and critical theory. She's the author of the chapbooks Organ Speech and Some Citrus Makes Me Blue, of her 2015 debut full-length collection, The Kingdom and After, Robert Pinsky said, her fresh, embracing imagination attends to several continents, many languages and cultures, with the originality of one who looks at a piano from below, seeing the woody spirit of the instrument, its cavern and brackets. Megan Fernandez was also the Robert Pinsky Global Fellow in Portugal, has been a book reviewer for the Harriet Books blog at the Poetry Foundation website, and has had her poetry published widely from McSweeney's to the American Poetry Review to the New Yorker. Fernandez's second book, Good Boys, out with Tin House in 2020, was heralded by many of our great contemporary poets. Kaba Akbar calls it, quote, a staggering text, ferocious, vulnerable, funny, ambitious, and deeply rigorous. What can a poet do for people, for a planet, literally dying of human greed? Fernandez answers, I map the storms of the whole world. Brenda Shaughnessy says, the poetry of Megan Fernandez gives me courage to get up another day and fight the patriarchy and racist nationalism. Her limitless imagination and beautiful, lyrical, powerful lines are worth fighting for. Everyone should give this book to someone they love, and everyone should love someone enough to give them this book. Bomb Magazine said, If Broad City and Carmen Maria Machado had a poetry baby, it would be Good Boys. Good Boys was a finalist for the Kundaman Poetry Prize, the Saturnalia Book Prize, and the Patterson Poetry Prize. And Megan Fernandez is here today to talk about her latest book, also from Tin House, called I Do Everything I'm Told. Poet and editor of Poetry Magazine, Adrian Matika, says of this book, Megan Fernandez is one of my favorite poets because she does things on the page that I and most other poets can't imagine. Her rhapsodic lineation, her liberated image and metaphor, all that wonder is on display in her new stunner, I Do Everything I'm Told. The collection is, at its center, a book of love poems, like all the best poetry collections are. The pretense of love, the past tense of love, and what we do when the little galaxies we build with others 
start to come apart. Fernandez navigates these spaces with the kind of slick wit and care that love poems require. Awareness, eros, and utter abandon. Her first two collections showed us the possibilities for a different kind of poem. I Do Everything I'm Told shows us what poetry looks like in the aftermath. And I'll McElroy for Vulture ads. Megan Fernandez writes beautifully on the thorny relationship between grief, regret, and desire with verse that spans continents and beloveds and alternate timelines. Her poems are loving and messy, but always precise. Her insights the kind that make you reevaluate your entire life. This book captures Fernandez at her most mature, exciting, and brave. I do everything I'm told is a perfect entry point to Fernandez's captivating and irreverent style. Welcome to Between the Covers, Megan Fernandez. Thank you so much. It's hard not to feel really overwhelmed by that introduction, but I really appreciate that. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing good. I've been looking forward to today. Um, I wanted to start with your poetics. The dedication to the book reads, For the Restless. And you've said in the past that speed, adrenaline, and improvisation are important ways to understand your poetics. You even wrote a piece called Seven Books for People Who Like Speed for Electric Literature, which includes everyone from Banu Kapil's Vertical Interrogation of Strangers to Tommy Pico's Nature Poem to Frank O'Hara, who is a pole star poet for you. Your dedication to your latest book suggests that this relation to velocity, to speed, to movement continues. But you've also said at the Creative Independent that COVID has changed your poetics and your relation to speed. Whereas pre-2020, you saw New York City as a playground of adrenaline, the pandemic made you slow down. And you say, quote, it made me think about the constraints of the city. And I mean that formally. It made me think about what a street is. And at the Adroit Journal, you say you're entering into a new relationship with pause, silence, control, and what goes unsaid. And you also mentioned the book being more formal. So I would love to hear about speed in its own right as a poetics, what that has meant for you, and how a collection dedicated to the restless does and doesn't continue the project, as well as what you mean by thinking about the constraints of the city where you say, parenthetically, and I mean that formally. So talk to us a little bit about speed and poetry and how that speed is speeding along in the new one or not. Yeah, that's such a great question. My mind went in 25 different directions. So I guess the first thing I should say is that I have ADHD and I have a very quick attention span. I think I'm someone who's a very associative thinker. So we'll start on one topic and immediately my brain is just going in a lot of different places at once. I kind of experience a sense of simultaneity with the present, right? So when I'm in front of something, I'm not seeing something chronologically and narrative has always been a little bit difficult for me. Plot is difficult for me because of that. I'm I'm sort of like overwhelmed with this kind of sensory panorama. And I, I just have been thinking a little bit, I just assumed everybody experienced the world that way, which is, which is what we all do. I'm just like, oh yeah, you see it too, right? Like your head is like, 
beating really fast, right? And so Good Boys was a way of sort of thinking about um, kind of being anti-constraint, anti-precise in terms of the way that I was thinking about like the syllabic count of a line. Some of the lines are really unruly and ungovernable in a book like Good Boys. They almost seem like they're kind of being driven by a stream of consciousness that it's literally moving to like its own beat, and to me, I, like, I think I said somewhere, I'm like, this is really anti-colonial because it's a way of thinking about time in a sense where you cannot control it. And I really do believe that. I think time is something that has been compartmentalized so that we can understand it in terms of order, in terms of geopolitics, in terms of also calling, let's say, the global South lazy or behind or delayed and thinking about modernity as something that's fast and progressive. And as, you know, David Harvey says, compresses time and space. So that book was, I think, trying to sort of play a little bit with unruliness and also taking influences from the Black arts movement and from poetry that's maybe more sermonic um, to saying that, like, you know, when you come to a line where a lot of things are happening and you don't know what's going to happen next, even if the next line isn't necessarily the most crucial to a sense of the poem, like in Why We Drink, a poem like that. There are some lines in there that are almost trying to stall the epiphany, but you can't get to the epiphany without the stall, you know? And the new book is really about trying to foreground what was once background. So that's what I mean in, in that interview that you quoted from the Creative Independent, where it's like, I'm in a city... I'm in New York and all of a sudden I'm just in my courtyard looking around at all the plants that have always been in my courtyard and being like, I don't know what any of these plants are. <laughs> you know, I don't know anything yeah. about the trees on my street. I don't really know how, like what the median rent is like on the street that I live. I don't know people who get by. I, I don't know the name of certain people who I know have been, who've been living on the street at my street. So to me, like that slowing down is also a form of foregrounding what makes up the ambience or the atmosphere of a city and realizing that that actually is kind of the city and sort of moving against the compulsive protagonism that I think sometimes speed allows, right? Like if we march to our own beat, if we're like have our own rhythm in our head, that's the rhythm and people have to either jump on the train, right? Or they have to get off the train. Mm -hmm. And this book is a little bit trying to attend to what am I saying? And then also what is the subterranean of what I'm saying? So in that one sonnet crown, I have a sonnet and then there are all these erasures and the erasures are really about like the subterranean, the unconscious, what goes unsaid, what is not allowed to be foregrounded Right. And just try to pick up the pieces of what might be missing mm. uh, when we move really fast. And I love moving fast. That's my natural speed. But I also think that speed is also capitalism. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to sort of like think about slow time um, and think about just time a little bit differently. Well, again, at the Creative Independent, which I think is one of my favorite interviews with you, you speak to another element of your poetics that we don't often hear put forth aspirationally in poetry, which is messiness, uh, which you've already alluded to a little bit already. You talk about how you're against economy in poetry where everything is tight and precise, which goes against an improvisational aesthetic. And you go on to say that you feel like a poem can feel messy when the reader is walking alongside the speaker of the poem 
as opposed to a speaker who is omniscient and in a, in a sort of controlled aerial position, which makes me think of Jory Graham on this very thing, actually, on the dangers and problems with speaking from above life rather than from within, from within one's limited embodied self, which to me suggests that your desire for messiness isn't just an aesthetic, but also political, and, and you've already nodded to that already. Um, you say about your own poetry, quote, I write it with the reader close next to me. I write it with a sense that the flow is going to be a little bit unruly, and I believe in unruly. Philosophically, I believe in it because it's anti-colonial, and it feels really global south to me. It feels informal and inconvenient and cognitively disruptive. So for me, that's very crafted. Improvisational flow is a craft because you need to know how much you can get away with and what you're trying to get away with is time. Digression, clearing your throat, clearing the air, being against efficiency, which is also a way of being against capitalism. Um, and those thoughts on messiness make me think of Johannes Jorensen's thoughts on excess, where he says, in U.S. poetry discussions, metaphoricity is something that always has to be disciplined, from MFA pedagogy to language poetry poetics. It's the site of potential excess, where the books are unbalanced, tastefulness transgressed. And he speaks a lot about how things are policed around tastefulness, so much so that the notion that one, I think, should be slow and economical, spare and precise, seem almost like a truism in the discourse. But you, you say in your last book, but you see I was 17 and alone, and nobody gave me anything except one book by Dickinson, and she was so neat, so precise, so human, and I wasn't. I just wasn't. I was just a dog. I wasn't even that good. So I'd love to hear any further thoughts you have about messiness and, and also like speed, how your new, new book either extends this relationship or departs from messiness. I'm against mastery. I'm against the idea that poets need to be super professionalized. I'm against disciplinarity in all interpretations of that word, because I think it's bad for poetry, both the craft of poetry, and I also think it's bad for the world and, and life of poets and poetry, right? And then I love what you said about access, because I do think that there's this idea of like being the unruly subject, being abject, being outside of the container of oneself, being boundless and being in relation with the world in a way where your body, your poetics, your language, your emotions spill over of what over what is tasteful, as you said, or what is appropriate or acceptable kind of demonstrates or shows those drives within us that are unable to be regulated, right? And I think that there's a lot of truth in those drives. I think that we have created a lot of taboos in this in society in sort of controlling those drives. And so, yeah, I remember reading like Dickinson as a young kid, you know, it was one of the two books that I had on my shelf. My parents had Khalil Gibran and they had Dickinson really randomly. Um, and I just remember being like, okay, like she's really tight. 
in her like poetry and she's so declarative and there was something really unrelatable about it to me because I am more neurotic in my thinking. I think, and then I unthink and then I overthink and then I change what I think. And I think I'm a very impressionable person and in, in a good way, in a bad way, but meaning like, you know, an idea comes to me and I really do entertain the idea you know, about the world, about myself, about somebody else. And I think that like, if we had that freedom in poetry, even the permission to be like, I'm going to be a little bit messy here. And I'm showing almost like as an Ars Poetica, the way the process of thought is messy. The ways also that like in modernist literature, right? Like there was a kind of artifice of mess, like every chapter of Ulysses was like an experimentation with excess, with mess, with different forms of stream of consciousness again. So I don't know, to me, I'm like, it's kind of in a way, a really old modernist idea, which is like, one should be able to be imprecise and unruly and not exacting on the page because that is actually shows you what is a semiotic failure. What is the language? What is the failure of language? It never captures grief. It can approximate it, but what do we show on the way to the approximation of grief? And that's why I love poets. Like I love Whitman. I love, you know, Ginsburg. I love O'Hara who like, you can see how they think, you know, to me, that was really important. And then for this book, I think, you know, Etheridge Knight and Gwendolyn Brooks were really important for this book. Gwendolyn, because she's so tight in her early career. And then she, there's something that happens, I think, later in her poetry where, like, she's allowed allowing herself to change her mind about things. Again, the Black arts movement was just, for me, like, a place where improvisation meant, like, you it was anti-formula. It was like, hey, the epiphany that you think we're going to arrive at is not the same as the genteel tradition. It's not what not always going to be in the line that you think it's going to be in. And that also there's so much that potentially can happen in terms of interpretation with some mess in it, mm -hmm. you know? Well, we have a question for you from the poet and novelist Hala Alyan. And I think this is a good place for her to ask it since we're looking at a little bit of a shift in your poetics between books. Still speed and still messiness, but maybe more constraint and formal um, containment than good boys. So here's a question from Hala. Hi, lovely Megan. It's Hala. So my question for you today is, which poem did you have the most difficult time with? Which one gave you the hardest time? And I feel like most difficult often means richest, but it could have been in terms of conceiving it, writing it, editing it, finding a place for it within the collection. Um, can't wait to hear your answer. Love you. Oh my God, I love her. And I love her voice. Thanks for that question, Hala. So two things. As a set of poems, I think The Crown was the hardest thing to I've written ever. It took me an embarrassing long time to write that. It, I revisited those poems. I gave those poems to people I really trusted. And one of them said something really helpful to me. They're like, you can't tell if the city is the beloved because every poem, sorry, in the crown is based off a city. So there's like a Lisbon sonnet. There's a Shanghai sonnet. You know, there's a Philadelphia sonnet. And they're like, I can't tell if the city is the beloved or if the beloved is 
the beloved in, in the city. And I was really kind of struggling with that because I think that those poems really are about diaspora and what it's like to move through a, a set of seven really different cities. A lot of them have different relationships to empire, but also to kind of be able to talk about love. And this is something I think about all the time as a person of color writing right now. It's just like, sometimes I just want to write a love poem and not have to contend with the zeitgeist, not have to have the ceiling of the zeitgeist so low where I feel like what I'm answering to is the low ceiling of the zeitgeist and not the beloved of the poem. And so I was really trying to like, I was struggling with the triangulation that the moment, what the moment is asking of a lot of poets, particularly poets of color, right? My own personal desires. And then what was actually coming out in the poem, which was some kind of mixture or struggle with both, right? So I look at that, that crown and I'm like, this isn't like about diaspora. This isn't about race. And then like, I'm close reading that poem and it's like, nobody told me how to raise a dark child, right? Mm-hmm. The speaker it knows that certain people have to break rules in order to love her. And so there's just this con- contention with like being a dark bodied person, being seen differently, having unintelligible love stories, having to sort of compartmentalize a lot in order to move through the world and that was just psychologically. And I don't know if you know this, but Hala is also a therapist. No, I um, know that. So <laughs> psychologically, I think that was the hard, those were the hardest poems to write. And then the erasures, which were like the site of some unconscious, I think were also really difficult to try and figure out what was the thing I wasn't really saying. How can I say it in you know, in really clipped 14 lines. And then I would say secondly is the first poem, the book, which is now tired of love poems. I really struggled with the third and fourth line of those poems. Cause I was like, what is the poem really trying to argue? And I think that poem says something like we wish to worship more than just each other. We write a sonnet to a bird or like sometimes a tree. And we have all these grand signifiers that we love to write about like bird poems and like the tree. And I'm like, but what are these really stand-ins for? You know, unfortunately we know what these are stand-ins for. And it's often like a thing that, a, a thing that cannot love us, a person who cannot love us. And it's so boring and it's so cliche and it's so annoying. And here I am writing about this whole book and here we all are writing love poems, you know? Well, I just, got the final copy of the book yesterday. So I've been working off the galley. So I just opened it when you were talking. I'm like, oh my God, you switched. So Tired of Love Poems in the Galley was the last poem and Love Poem was the first poem, but now it's reversed. They're still bookending the collection. Is there anything you wanted to say about flipping them between the galley and the final? You know, it's so funny. I was, I've been reading the Inferno and like I've been watching these lectures online. There's this professor from Yale who was like, does anybody know why it's called the divine comedy? And I was like, actually, no, because it seems like a bummer. Why is it called the divine comedy? <laughs> and he was, he said something like, you know, in terms of genre, a comedy is that which begins in disorder and ends up in order. And a tragedy is something that begins in order and ends up in disorder. Mm. And so if you think about that, like from a Shakespearean point of view, like it's actually, you know, really helpful and true. And so the divine comedy begins in disorder 
but ends up obviously in paradise in kind of order. And so when I was thinking about the bookends for this thing, I'm like, okay, tired of love poems. That begins in a kind of like, the title is disordered, but it begins, but the poem is actually like you approach on a red bike in summer. And then the love poem is like, looks like it's going to begin in order, but actually the last, like the last line is, even if it was ugly, it was joy. So I think to me, I was like trying to think about what is, where where does the book begin and where does it end? And I wanted it to sort of like subvert both of the genre kind of um, expectations of what that arc might look like. And it felt like more like an invitation to me to begin the poem in exhaustion, Mm -hmm. to be like, listen, it's a love poem book, guys. I know you're all tired of this bullshit, but this is not a book that's geopolitically going to change the world, whatever. Like, this is just a book about like feeling in love and feeling rejected and being humiliated and desire as deeply instructional, you know? And I don't know, I think it's better to begin the book in exhaustion and end the book being like, well, it was exhausting, but it was still, (laughs) it was still pretty fucking great, you know? Well, let's hear a poem. And I was, I was going to suggest possibly drive. It felt like maybe one example of a poem that works against efficiency. This is my favorite poem in the book. And it was a super last minute edition. And so, yeah, I feel like that's a lot of pressure now that I said that out loud. Um, Okay. So this is drive. And I just want to say when you're a young person, David, you look at self-help books and you're just like, this is so funny and ironic. And you're like, super like whatever. And then when you're in your thirties, you're like, I just am going to try and buy all of these books (laughs) and listen to them and hope that this comes out in a smart and I just come out better. So you start something you made fun of, you start doing earnestly. So at the time I was reading Russell Brand's (laughs) <laughs> the British comedian yeah. book. And so that's all you need to know about this poem. Okay, drive. I walk into a record store on Christmas Eve and the cars are playing. So of course I think of you. In therapy, I learn words and box three days a week and read Russell Brand's book about being fucked and for months cut out drinking and apply to divinity school and examine my life and the impossibility of you and I and how I is a mirror and you is nothing but a projection of I. And I did try honestly. I recited cliches when language failed and let my self-helping heart run ravenous at a buffet of cheap routines and then came armed one day with my ancestors who had lived through evolutions and ships raging at their shores and they too shrugged at me. So I blamed sexuality and childhood and made every target an easy one just to make it make sense, but it wouldn't fit, nothing fit. And my friends said words about history and power and I wanted the pain to be ideological, but it was too easy and nobody admits that ideology can envelop almost anything and therefore is bad form. I gave up. It was an angelic state, a surrender to a belief that you and I was a unity that could return one home if home were a pair of blue stars in devoted orbits seen as one bright pulse from earth away from the brute facts of living. But home is not two suns. There is no home and nothing to return to, just a series of shadows, partial signs of presence, a flickering I say things and then unsay them. It was love. It was not love. It is raining. It is not raining. Contradictions are a sign we are from God. We fall. We don't always get to ask why. Been listening to Megan Fernandez read from her latest book, I Do Everything I'm Told. So you've described the lives of your parents as messy and illegible insofar as 
identity politics in the U.S. seeks to reduce the complexities of diaspora and colonization into something legible and more easily understood. And here again, I think of excess uh, and Johannes Jorensen's line about translation. Translation troubles borders, makes versions, creates excess. Translation unbalances the books. And it, it feels like you've done something unruly with your poetry in the spirit of your impossible to categorize identity. Your family are East African from Tanzania, but of Goan origin. So their ancestors are from the once Portuguese colonized southwestern province in India. But the complexity just begins there. They were part of a Christian minority in their small town in Tanzania. 90% of their neighbors were practicing Islam. You have family in Africa and Zanzibar, mainland Tanzania, Uganda, family in India and in England, in the Cayman Islands and Australia and New Zealand. Different grandparents of yours spoke Portuguese or English or Hindi or Konkani. And you yourself were born in Canada but grew up in the United States. And I suspect you were frequently mistaken and probably continue to be mistaken as Hispanic due to your name of Portuguese origin. So I'm going to read a couple excerpts from your essay, Obama and Kenya, Geographies of Diaspora and Four Movements, where you are attending your Aunt Bessie's funeral in London, where you say of your father, quote, when he speaks Swahili, it is as if he's been keeping a secret from us his whole life. And then later about yourself, you say, you are Indian, but you must explain your Portuguese last name, your parents' British accents, your parents' Swahili tongue, and Hindi ignorance, your white-as-fuck first name given to you by your parents who liked a character in the TV show The Thornbirds, which is just amazing. Um, you're Indian, but your mother is third-generation Tanzanian. Your father grew up in Tonga and never visited India until he was in his 40s. You're Indian, but no, you're really going. You're going, but someone once told you that this means you are white Indian, but black Portuguese. You are not Portuguese, but your grandmother only spoke Portuguese and Konkani. She refused to speak English or Swahili. You are not Portuguese, but your aunts and uncles are all named Zelia, Maria, Luis, Teresa, Evaristo, Zarina, Basila. You are not, you are not, you are, you are. To me, this is another way to understand your dedication to restlessness, to this constant movement of your family as a poetics that troubles nation and borders and race and language and identity the ways your own family does. I don't know if that's too reductive of a connection, but you also have a line in your work that isn't incompatible with this framing, but I think adds an interesting additional complexity to it, a line that goes, I don't believe in kin by blood. So I was hoping you could talk to us about family, family by blood, about diaspora in relation to your poetics a little bit more, and how kinship that isn't predicated on blood relates to this, this uh, illegible um, identity. Thank you for that question and, and for, again, reading those passages a lot. I haven't thought about that essay for a while. You know, I think somewhere in there I say like part of diaspora is that you go and you bury people in like in the suburbs of like global north cities. 
And that was definitely true of, of going to my aunt Bessie's funeral and just being like, what is, what is London to us, you know, and then trying to figure out. And I think the opening of that, the epigraph is from a book um, on the Hadrami, I believe that, that says something like nation state is where you're born um, and diaspora is where you die. And so I've just been, you know, thinking about like mortality of a certain generation, my parents' generation right now, where my aunts and uncles are dying, how far it is from home, that sense of longing, that sense of invention, right, that one has to um, have with their childhood. It's funny you're asking this because just yesterday I was with my dad and I was like, you know, where do you feel the most at home? Like, do you feel the most at home? you know, when you think about India, which, you know, again, he didn't go to in his forties, or when you think about Tanzania, or when you think about England, where you went, you kind of came of age in England, he moved there when he was 17 to go to school. And he was really thoughtful. He said something like, you know, all of them, all of them at once. Um, Obviously, like when you have a childhood, you re-experience those kinds of precious memories. But one thing I've noticed is a lot of like older family members, they really, once they get to a certain age where they're becoming a little bit more, I don't know what the word is, disoriented in terms of where they are and where they think they are. They're always like, I'm ready to go home, you know, like, and by that, a lot of them do mean like back to Tanzania or if they were in Tanzania, back to to India. And so to me, like that idea of a return is something I think that is one of the heartbreaking parts of diaspora. And also one of the major fictions and myths of modernity and the idea that people are trying to leave the global South to come to the global North, you know, for all sorts of reasons that extremely narrow-minded, mostly conservative people think they are as if the global North is the site of, of everything possible, which it isn't. And I think by kinship, you know, kinship by blood, I just have a very, very big group of friends that I'm really close to. And in some ways I'm closer to than a lot of members of my family who know me and know parts of me that I will never be able to kind of fully express to my family. And I think that going back to like a poetics, if you, I don't know if you've read Glissant's Poetics of Relation, where he has this concept of like opacity mm-hmm. and, you know, t- to say that you, that you love someone because they are legible to you is kind of like easy because you can see them and they relate to you. But to say that you love someone where you cannot understand them, where they have no seeming kind of like, uh, what's the word? They have no stakes in your livelihood for any other reason than they love you. I think that that to me is much more radical, Mm -hmm. you know, it is. And I think there's also the discourse of ancestors is really interesting. It's become very prevalent right now. And I'm very wary of any kind of language that deifies in, in an abstract way, anything, right? Um, and, and the sort of movement between the deification of a people versus the mythology of a people. I think that that space is kind of tricky. So in this poem, I'm also just sort of like, laughing at the idea of being like you know like there's a poem where I'm like wake up like naked in Bushwick and I'm like oh like on a roof and I'm like oh my god like you know my ancestors aren't taking my fucking phone call David you know for that I know some of them they're not taking that phone call they'd be like get your ass home get in order get yourself together you know so there is also this way of being like I'm forever parented by the ancestors who like probably don't even understand a lot of what 
you know, my contemporary life is. And that's also funny. Also, these are like sites of misunderstanding and illegibility and humor. I don't know if that answers your question. It does. And I want to spend some time later, or maybe now just as a beginning around how you enact kinship in the in the realm of poetry and poetics. But in the spirit of kinship beyond blood, I think a first step to that would be to spend some more time with the sonnets, mm-hmm. um, the sonnets that you call the sonnets of the false beloveds with one exception or repetition compulsion. It's the place that's both the most formally legible of your poems and that travels the world, Shanghai sonnet, Brooklyn sonnet, Los Angeles sonnet, Lisbon sonnet, Palermo sonnet, Paris sonnet, Philadelphia sonnet, and wandering sonnet. But it's also, as you've alluded to, it may be the place in the book that's the most formally illegible at the same time because of the facing page of each sonnet and its accompanying erasure poem of that sonnet. But to put aside the erasures, which I want to talk a little bit more about with you uh, for a minute, and also we have a question for you about the erasures. So putting aside the erasures for a second, I want to hear about the sonnets and this most formal aspect of the book I don't know if it's related to the way you notice constraint of the city under the lockdown, but why did you want these poems to assume a formal constraint around these cities? And why sonnets, if there is a reason for us, for the, these being sonnets versus villanelles or some other form? First of all, repetition compulsion, if you don't, I mean, I'm sure most people know what it is, but it's like Freud's most like basic 101 theory. And I was like going to my therapist a lot and thought I was like super complicated. And I was like, I'm definitely the most complicated, interesting patient this therapist has. And, you know, I've like PhD, I've read a lot of Freud and like Lacan and (laughs) Melanie Klein. And then I like reread the pleasure principle essay. And I was like, oh, I am the most basic bitch in the world. Like it was (laughs) so embarrassing, David. And basically the idea is that like, the baby, the kid throws, you know, when a kid like throws an object across the room, yeah. then freaks out because it's not with him. And then like the primary caregiver or somebody in the room brings it back and he's like so excited and then he throws it again. And then you just want to kill yourself because you're like, why is this kid doing that? Like Freud basically argues like the kid is practicing like abandonment and the neurotic pain that comes from that abandonment and then the joy of the reunion mm-hmm. and is willing to stand the abandonment of the toy or the separation from the toy in order to get the pleasure right of the reunion and most like behaviors that we repeat so any young people out here just trying to like check yourself right like if you keep doing the same thing over and over again And you don't notice it's a pattern until you actually stop. And you're like, this is a pattern that I have. Let me try and figure out what kind of psychic drama I'm trying to understand. Then that can lead you to sort of thinking formally about like what actually repetition does. And repetition to me is like you do something over and over again because you can't figure it out. Mm -hmm. It's like you're stuck, right? Um, And you need to find a way around it and you can't. And it's also based, of course, in trauma, which is like we repeat things over and over again because there's something that happened to us that maybe we can't even access. It's below the surface of what we can access. And so it made so much sense to me that this had to be a crown because I was going around all these different cities and a lot of the things that were happening were like kind of like similar, you know, and 
I was like, what is wrong with me? What's going on with me that like, it doesn't matter where I am. And this is like, so me, I'll be in a city and I'm like, it's the city. It's not me. Boop. I'm going to a different city and I don't have any children and I don't have like a mortgage. I have no wealth accumulation. I have no car. I own nothing, but my whole life is based on like being able to get on a train, you Mm -hmm. know, or a plane or whatever. Right. I've like built my life around running or spontaneity, whatever you want to call it. And no matter where I was, it was me who kept doing these things. So I was like, okay, what's happening here? Um, And, you know, I cast beloveds, I kill them off too, which is this idea of like object replacement, right? Beloved object replacement. And thinking about why so many poets use beloveds as plot devices and how that's kind of colonial and shitty and we can make beloveds do whatever we want. And why aren't we thinking about that more? And then the opening and the, the last line it kind of forced me to think through what is not just the origin, but like, where is the sort of trauma of, of the, of the psychic kind of world, like getting caught. And then the last sonnet, which is the wandering sonnet is like the seven lines of the like repeated lines and then an answer to the line. So it's like, you know, I think that last one is like, I cast beloveds, I kill them off too. And then the sort of answer to that line is something like, I am a beloved, um, I keep mine too, right? They're almost like these reparative kind of lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and then not in the galley, but in the actual finished product, there's also a diaspora on it where they have all the erasures and almost this kind of Diane Susie looking sonnet that are kind of these long run on sonnets. And then at the end, it's all these verbs, right? Just like the wandering sonnets different than a lot of the other sonnets, the sort of scattershot verbs, the active verbs at the end, they're not really like the other erasures. I cast, we make, I lose. You are sort of blown across several pages. Um, What is going on there? Yeah, you know, I was reading Carson's on Bittersweet, you know, the Eros on Bittersweet. Mm -hmm. And I was, she writes a lot about love triangles and the triangulation of the lover, the beloved, and then the object between them and how you can't have what you don't, you can't desire what you already have, right? And then she says something, which of course is like the epigraph of the section, like Eros is a verb. What longing is, is the sort of inaction of agency that takes place in the verb, right? And how childlike that is, right? Like if you're around kids, they're just like, I want, I need, I want, I, you know, Mm. but then also like trying to figure out like that their arm is not like the chair in like the mirror stage of them. Like I am, I am, you are, you are like, it's that trauma of separation, right? From like, they're whoever they're around where they become a cohesive subject but it's also always that the kind of management of agency and desire that you have which you're just constantly enacting verbs and action even if you don't have the agency to to do that right and so i wanted to sort of see what was actually the poem doing if you took out all the other clauses and it was just you and me, you like me and the beloved in a room. And it's like, I am you poor. I think you scare. I think you insist. And it almost is enough where like, you can already tell what the dynamic is between them. And you don't even need any of the context, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So it's a decontextualizing moment of thinking about Eros. Eros doesn't need a lot of context. It's mostly like singing your desire into the world 
mm-hmm. and everybody's desires almost like archetypically, but they follow this formula, you know? I love that. Well, let's step back into the crown of sonnets and into the the erasures of most of the sonnets. And here's a question for you from Eleni Siclianos. Hi, Meg. It's Eleni. It was so fun to read your book, which was like being gifted with explosive party favors, throwing confetti in the air, but at the same time, secretly testing the limits of time and space. Here is a question for you. Tell me what you're up to or after in the erasures and regatherings you do in the false beloved section, the sonnets. I really love that section. And the poems seem to exist in both apophatic and cataphatic space, offering, divulging, taking back, diverting, reconstituting. So I'm curious about your process and what you were thinking about in the formal gestures. I love Eleni's work so much. Eleni is also one of my first poetry loves, I should say. I was so thrilled that that she, that she was given an opportunity to ask a question. So thank you for that question, Eleni. One thing I was thinking a lot about is um, prepositions, actually, and how prepositions are really like orienting the word under or in and what it means to be like sort of oriented and reoriented right within the poem, but then also to sort of like distill out not sort of like the thesis topic of the poem, because I don't think that that was, that was, that's even possible, almost like kind of like the rhythmic undercurrent of the poem to see a more naked version of what might be the question of that poem. So if you look at something like the Palermo sonnet, which really is about me and a friend being in Palermo and kind of being surrounded by men who couldn't understand what our relationship was, sort of being in spaces where like we had to change the way we were behaving or think a lot about our relationship to masculinity in a different city, which is also something gender and sexuality are so mutable in these situations. And then the erasure of it is really just kind of about what that place that you go to when you kind of go to that space of shame, right? Like how to raise a child underwater, you know, for me was really about like, oh, this is about queerness and this is about queerness and shame. And this is about, you know, having to pay for, for that. And you're always paying for that, even if you're not paying for that, to your parents, right? And it's like, in a wild fear, men pay, our fathers like insist, Mm -hmm. like this way, how you're always paying for feeling abject or feeling like not, you're not quite fitting like a certain mold of, of femininity or of the performance of gender. You know, me and me and this person who's the beloved in the poem, we always joke we were at like a table once and we were the only two women there and are all men around us. And, you know, this person is like actually kind of a big deal. She's a big deal artist. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not nothing. I was also a professor at the time and uh, nobody asked us a single question at the table. And then she just screamed across this long table of men, like, 
Megan, what do you do? And then <laughs> started screaming across her the table. And I was like, Eliza, what do you do? And we just were screaming like delu- like and people thought we were crazy. Yeah, but I it love was it, because though. nobody, you know? Yeah. So I don't know that like the under the erasures are really about like where is the behavior coming from? Where did we learn it? Right. What's the undercurrent of the way that we act? And I really do think like women in particular are socialized to be actresses Mm. in order to make other people feel okay and to take care of people and to do a lot of emotional labor. And, you know, and so it's a little bit like, is it persona or is it like a persona that we can step into and have to step out of depending on a violence that we perceive around us, you know? Yeah. Well, could we hear the unerased Palermo sonnet and then the unerased Paris sonnet so we could hear how they're related to each other, how how all of them are typically related to each other. And then I want to talk to you about sort of the connective t- tissue between the sonnets. Okay, Palermo sonnet. Nobody tells you how to raise a dark child. Even Cronus sent his son underwater because all origins are first strung in myth and bottomless disappointment. In a street blackout, we light candles while teenage boys break into our house just so we know they can enter whenever they want. Nothing is stolen. You pour orange rosa and ask what I think of your hometown. It feels like a proposal. That night, sailing in a wild storm with Icarus to our left, you show no fear. You scare men and gods and joke all women pay for the sins of fathers, even if they aren't our fathers or sins. You insist bad weather is a gift. Rain gathers in. Paris Sonnet. Bad weather is a gift. Rain gathers in Beauchamp, where I sink stones into pools of mirrored water spotting the park sand. I used to beat women, you tell me your face open like a lion. It took me too long to realize that people who read Marx can also beat women. You are rough just once, bruised wrist. We fought on the street, a child watched under a green awning. That was the era of violence. And it was over fast because you knew you were an experiment. I am your goddamn slum experiment, you laughed. You're criminal. No, just the cruelest person I have loved. Listening to Megan Fernandez read from her latest book from Tin House, I Do Everything I'm Told. So when you were talking about the sonnets using the framing and language of Freud, I came up with a different one that I want to propose. Not an incompatible one, but just an entirely different one. And I want to hear what you think about it. Let's go. I love this. (laughs) All right. Um, If one just glanced at the table of contents from your three books or the places referenced one poem to the next, one might think you were a jet setter, that this was simply a book of global travel from one great city to the next. But I feel like the way the last line of one city's sonnet gets pulled into the first line of the next city's sonnet or becomes the seed from which the next emerges is enacting something, obviously poetically, but I think politically also, that perhaps like Eleni mentioning first the sense of explosive party favors, but then really the undercurrent of testing the limits of time and space. Uh, The book is doing something 
deep. Not that a book that was just about love, just about love. Not that a book about love isn't enough, but I think you are underselling the the various things that this book is doing. Um, and this is one that I that I really um, loved. The pulling of lines from one sonnet to the next made me think of another book, and it's one that you've reviewed, A Different Distance, which is co-written by Pass Between the Covers guests, the poet Karthika Nair and the poet and translator Marilyn Hacker. And they wrote it in the depths of lockdown. So even though they lived in the same city, Paris, they were really experiencing a different distance. They might as well have been on opposite sides of the globe. The pandemic had changed their relationship in a way that I think we can all relate to, to both space and time. And to close that distance, they decided to not only collaborate on a book, but to use a collaborative form, the 700-year-old Japanese form called the Ranga, where one poet writes the first stanza, which in the most traditional version would be three lines long with 17 syllables. And then the next poet adds the second stanza, which would be a couplet with seven syllables per line, and so on. And typically... The new stanza is written as if it leaps from the stanza preceding it in order to create a link. And for Kartika and, and Marilyn, that manifested like your sonnets with a word in the last line of one poet's stanza finding itself in the first line of the other poet's subsequent stanza. And it feels like in a way you're writing a renga between cities rather than between people not simply moving from place to place, but doing a sort of stitching together. That reminds me of this uh, notion of, of kinship not associated by blood. But I wondered if this is feeling like a stretch or if I'm reading too much into it to think that there's something you're doing formally beyond sonnets that is about the project of kinship and family that isn't family by blood. Hugely. I mean, it's like a very, in that way, I think it's um, like a queer kinship crown, which is like, here are the ways that I've learned about something that maybe I should have learned about elsewhere, or I was told I was going to learn in one setting. And now this is the setting where I'm learning it. And I'm purposely being kind of like abstract just to sort of be protective. I just want to clarify, like, and I'm like, oh, it's it's love poems, like blah, blah, blah. Like, I think, you know, it's like the most complicated thing in the world. And I think that love and desire and time and seasons and grief are all the things we have and and have not figured out. And sometimes I feel like we're kind of in a moment where what we want are books of poetry to almost like enact essays, like what essays do. They need to have arguments. They need to be ideological. And I just am a little bit of like a kind of sloppy philosopher where I'm just like, well, I think this one day and then I change my mind and here's why I came to this idea. And I think that, you know, there's something really, to me, there's something like a lot more honest about that way of moving through epistemologically what's possible to know about the world. So I don't think what you're saying, you know, is a stretch at all. Definitely. It's about this kind of collapse of time and and space, but it's also a little bit about like, I think about that Tommy Pico line where he's like, you know, I want to think about a curiosity that's not colonial. Right. And I have that line in my head every time I go to any global North city that has a history of empire, which is a lot of the poems in this book. And just think about like, well, 
what do we, what do we mean in terms of this kind of like hemispheric analysis? What are we actually saying in terms of like the people of color communities that live there? Um, like the parasonnet, you know, where the beloved and myself are also, you know, like people of color. And well, I guess what I'm saying is like, we are constantly creating borders, creating understandings of the nation in order to understand violence and understand the way the world has been made into what it is. And I think a lot of books have been doing that and and have done it really well. And I'm trying to sort of think a little bit about like boundlessness and like what happens when those boundaries and city nation states collapse under love or desire or longing and which can be violent, of course, but where the thing inside you also travels with you, which is what I think diaspora is. It's like being outside of the nation state, but also bringing like kind of mobilizing a lot with you. And a lot of what is with you also changes based on the new place. And so what you're left with is a kind of boundless subject position, which is made up of every place you've ever lived every place you've ever fallen in love, every place you've ever made a mistake or let somebody down, as one of the poems says. But not only that, all the places your parents have been and your cousins, right? And your sister. And then like, also on top of that, all the people who are not related to you and are not family, who who you can make a home with in their kind of space, if that that makes sense, right? There's a hilarious, um, it's not in the book, but like something that happened between me and one of the beloveds in the book where we were in, we were in like Southern Italy, which, you know, people are like, this is another thing that's kind of interesting is a lot of people are like, Ooh, Europe. I'm like, have you, have you been to the South of Italy? Like, have you been to Palermo, which has been colonized by like literally everyone. And is like such a mixture of like, you know, so there's something also that's trying to complicate. I think what we understand of as like Europe, as like the seat of empire, it's like, okay, it is that, but it's also like, you know, there's a lot of people of color there and these cities are extremely complicated and have different and really complicated histories of conquest and of um, abjectness and of, um, they have their own race politics. And like, as a person who's from a family, not from the U.S., I think sometimes the U.S. race politics model can feel really like, like it's one model, you know, and there's a multiplicity of other models out there. Um, what was I going to say to you? Oh yeah. I was in the South of Italy with a friend and I, we had to go pick up the keys for a house. I'm like, okay, well, you know, in my New York mode, I'm like, we'll go pick up the keys. That's going to take five minutes. Then we'll go do. And she was like, Megan, we're in the South. If you pick up the keys, it's going to take an hour because they're going to make you coffee. You're going to have to ask about their mother. Like, you know, the slow time, the idea that like, you don't make efficient, all of your intimacies, and to me, I'm like, right, that's, that's like, that to me is like very much a hemispheric, like understanding the South everywhere of like, no, you know, being anti-speed in that way, right? So I was reminded of something you said in your essay about the poet Mina Alexander, which I really loved. You say in that essay, and I think this relates to the stitching across cities also around a diaspora of politics. Here, Mina demonstrates a poetics of dislocation that was not based in the amnesia of lost, fractured, or forgotten homelands, but rather on the intrusion of those fragments into life. This is an important distinction. 
to think of a continuity that interrupts. It sounds almost paradoxical, but she would move in elliptical leaps between a vivid scene in New York to a train in India, a boat ride across the Indian Ocean to the rim of the South China Sea. And then she would interrogate herself as to how these juxtapositions made up a life, made up a consciousness. It made me wonder, I mean, that's just brilliant, this continuity that interrupts, this flipping of what it means to, and you've just mentioned that as well, or evoked that as well with this sense of boundlessness, almost like a holographic sense of identity where um, you're containing everything. But could you speak to Alexander's influence on you if she, if she has an influence on you as a writer? Oh my God. Yeah. Hugely. You know, I, I was so devastated after she passed because we never met. Um, but she was somebody that I picked up when I was in graduate school. You know, I entered my, my PhD when I was like 22 and I really loved her work, particularly um, the shock of arrival, which I was, I was actually thinking a lot about shock at the time and about like rupture, both like in narrative studies and also like trauma studies and like, what shock kind of tells us about time, which is like, it points out what time is because like, let's say it's like, okay, I have to meet you at 1 PM today. Time is like linear. And I know what 1 PM is and blah, blah, blah. But like when things shock you, they actually take you out of time and space and you're able to look at time and space, which is why when we're in periods of like shock, like we do experience time differently. Like either it's really long and generational or it's like psychotically clipped or like we wake up in a space of disorientation. And I think that she was really able to theorize a kind of disorientation for me in terms of shock, both in the shock of like going back home. Like I remember being in India when I was like young, young enough to be young enough to be like, oh my God, this is not like home, but old enough to remember it, taking a rickshaw in in Mumbai, just being like, really like, oh shit, there's like no, there's a kind of like, nobody's like following traffic laws and being like really in this world that was so different than the world I was living with at home. And to me, I was felt really guilty about that. It felt mm -hmm. even at the time that like to be shocked by things that were part of you, because of course that was part of me, what felt always really disingenuous and kind of inauthentic. And then I would have to like try and re-narrate that to myself and be like, well, why is it? Of course it's shocking. I grew up in Canada and from, from Philly, you know, like, what do I actually really know about Mumbai? Like I'm talking to my cousins, you don't know shit. You always feel inauthentic when you're a person who comes from a lot of places and you can never feel like you can speak on an authority on anything. And that ability that she has in that book and, and many of her books where she's just like, I had this experience and this experience and experience is a kind of authority and a kind of, as we said, stitching together of many chronologies and histories. That was very helpful for me. And I also think, you know, in that essay, there's this part where she's like, I want to introduce people from different centuries who I love. Mm -hmm. And I feel that way all the time where I'm like, man, I really wish I could get this character in the room with this other character, right? Or I wish I could get this poet in a room with another poet. And I wish time was not a constraint where that mattered or space or nationality, right? Or gender or race, you know, like I just read, been rereading like actually a lot this past year, Notes from the Underground. Mm -hmm. I think it's actually Notes from Underground, Toskieski. And I was just like, I just want to pull up a chair with that 
motherfucker and ask him some questions about one of these scenes and like you know the scene of humiliation of one of the girls you know the girl character in the book and something really modern about it it's something really aware that what the character is doing is humiliating a woman because he feels humiliated and yet there's something really like ages old as time about the scene too you know um so yeah i don't know it comes from also a desire to speak across time and difference boundlessness is also a way of trying to make difference something that doesn't have to cut us off from each other if that makes sense i bet you have read the new york times by the book column when they ask the writers who's going to be at their dinner party and you have answers for that absolutely but it changes you know it really changes. And sometimes it's like someone who's recently deceased. Like I think like of Mina. And then I also think like of someone like Franz Wright, who I think is an incredible poet and, you know, but is somebody who I think, you know, maybe had a reputation for being a little bit surly sometimes. And is somebody I met, we smoked a cigarette together once. And there were all these things I wanted to ask him that in life I could never ask him, but that maybe in a death dinner party, I could ask him, you know? Well, one thing I noticed as a reader of your poetry is a sense of feeling at home in it. I think part of it is this continuity that interrupts that crosses borders. Um, There are elements that feel almost utopian to me, not a family across the world, but a chosen family where you are. That is every religion, every race, every gender, which gets enacted also in all the meals which I love, like you'll be drinking a Mexican beer while eating Vietnamese food. But also there's a a political connectivity or awareness too, Uh, like in Good Boys, visiting Anne Frank's house, but being aware that it's happening at the same time as the U.S. is starting to bomb Syria. Reading your poetry is similar to my experience of New York in the sense that I felt very out of place and othered growing up in Colorado and I didn't have a language for it or an understanding of it entirely. And I hadn't spent any time in New York city until I was an adult. And in my mind, it was an intimidating place notionally. But when I went my twenties, there was this uncanny comfort that I felt immediately there it's not just there for me. I actually also feel it in Italy and in Mexico City and other parts of Mexico. But weirdly, even though the life you portray in your work isn't anything like mine, I somehow feel a part of it as I read it. And it is the world in many ways I would dream of living in, in the way that there is this connection. Um, I want to say this without erasing that the Poetry has a lot of pain and fear and anxiety in it. But I think that the connecting across difference in the face of all of that is what makes the connecting across difference meaningful, ultimately. So I wanted to return to how you saw this collection being more quiet and more formal due to the constraint of the city under lockdown. One way this collection feels different than Good Boys is that I think you are claiming a home. At least it feels that way. And, and in Good Boys, I don't feel like you were. That you're declaring at least what is not home more than in the previous book. I wonder if having more form 
having poems that are more contained might parallel you also feeling a, a rooting down in place, a sense of being in New York City as an axis. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that as a way to um, going on to read Love Poem, which used to open the collection but now ends the collection. But in, in my reading of the book, it declares a preference very strongly between coasts. It feels like a, a move that wouldn't have happened in Good Boys to me. My apologies to um, Los Angeles, which gets like a little bit of a, you know, <laughs> I lived on the West Coast for a little bit. And I think just infrastructurally, it wasn't the city for me. Obviously, I also don't drive. So that was kind of an issue. But let, I love that reading. It's really easy to shit on New York City and then you leave it. And then you're like, I want to go back to there <laughs> because it is a city where it has an indifference to like your heroic subjectivity. It's so indifferent to you that it is that there's something really comforting about it. But also you're just like allowed to be a freak and nothing is really kind of like shocking there. And there's a constant space of not just invention, but also not being able to know things like you can never fully know it. And there's always something you didn't know. There's always like some incredible like art space you hadn't heard of. You, there's some kind of scene on Monday nights you haven't been to. And that that is very like appealing to me. And I also think obviously it's a city with like a lot of problems and a lot of the problems include like food insecurity, which is, you know, up 50% and housing insecurity and a real callousness towards like people who are unhoused and um, mental illness, which is just getting worse in the city. But I think to declare a home, as I said, and, and to understand what reproduces a street is to be able to hold all of that together and to be accountable to that and to be responsible for that with however you want to sort of interpret that. And I know people who are doing different things in the city who are like cooking meals for like the outdoor fridges who have, who have become much more like active. Right. And, and thinking also about like the compassion fatigue of like our healthcare workers in New York city, which is really under, it's not talked about enough. There's a way in which I think New York thinks that it's fine and it's trying to like go forward. And then we have all this evidence that like, we're not fine. There's been not enough mourning. We don't know how to deal with this trauma and that this return to what we hope is a kind of normalcy is really just sort of a fiction. Mm -hmm. So I do think it's a little bit of a declaration of a home. I do feel at home there. I feel more at home in New York than I have in any other place I've ever lived for better or for worse though, because there's also a lot of hard things, right. About declaring it as home. But I think that kind of uncanny belonging that you just referenced is, I mean, I felt that at a very young age, the first time I ever came to New York, I just felt like, okay, this is a place where one can have like a sense of adventure and a sense of anonymity, which I think is like two of the great promises like of the city for me anyways. Sorry, you said something about the formal part of it. Well, just the sense that you've moved to a, a space of more constraint. So, I mean, obviously writing in sonnets is more constrained than what's going on in Good Boys. But I wondered if that paralleled this sense of Good Boys feels less tethered to a specific place to me than the new collection, which feels like goes everywhere, but also has a sense of where it's going to return to in a, in a way that maybe Good Boys doesn't in, the, in quite the same way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, also, I think when you have been in New York during 
the period of time in which the book was written and you've seen kind of a lot of very surreal things happen and you've experienced the city in that space of surrealism um, but also in that space of deep intimacy, like it's an island. I lived in, I live in Manhattan and like, there's a poem where I'm like, there was just like, you know, periods of time where I'm like, I'm walking from one river to the other river and it did not take that long. You know, it is a small space. So there's also this kind of at the, at the level of scale, the way in my imagination, it went from this giant space to the way it just became so small all of a sudden and so intimate. I think that for me, that is also part of like it feeling like home and really kind of a different way, getting to know my neighbors who I'd not like really known, like getting to know a lot of people in my life who I saw on the daily, who all of a sudden I couldn't see, but then I did see, you know, that stranger intimacy, which is so beautiful in New York city really kind of played out theatrically in in different ways, like during the pandemic where there was a level of like, I don't know you, but I do know you. And, you know, and how are you? And how's like your mother and like, you know, this sort of like level of care, you know, particularly obviously for people who are working in in essential jobs. And a lot of my family, as I said, were working in, in kind of healthcare capacities. And, you know, that also had me thinking a lot about like, what's a calling and what's a job and what it, what we need in order to survive, which is really something that's like quite elemental, you know, and quite kind of basic. So really I was writing poems that were more constrained and like there were, but they were also about like, where I can walk to, (laughs) you know, good boys is like, and this, and this, and this, and this, and like, you know, this new book is like, I could walk here. I walked to this park because that was the park I could walk to, you know? Um, And all of a sudden time and space become smaller. Your imagination has to become kind of bigger. There's a lot of stanzas in this, in the book. Like there's a lot of tersets and couplets more so than good boys. And I think that's also a kind of like, control or restraint uh, of way of thinking like is the poem trying to do something dialogic which I think is what the psychology of a couplet is right and that's coming from like long periods of time where you're just with yourself thinking you know interesting and you're mimicking that thought process yeah could we hear could we hear love poem of course let me get to the love poem which is now the last poem in the book love poem Sometimes I wonder if I would know a beautiful thing if I saw it. So often I was miserable when I was young, even in California with the ocean close and fat seals munching flatfish, tonguing urchins in their molars, sunning themselves pink by the sandy primrose. I ignored the whistle of the rock-faced mountain and her chorus of dry hills, walked past the blazing stars and lemons and dramatic ripe. I was so sad out west. The truth is I am most exquisite on the East Coast, meaning I am in rhythm. I do not track the world by beauty, but joy. That first bite into the soft carrot of tagine stew while a storm wailed over the East River. The misfit raccoon bouncing on trash bins in Central Park after we saw a Japanese play. We almost crashed a wedding that night at the boathouse, but lost our nerve. We were not dressed for the caper, but even this felt like rogue joy. Yes, it was joy, wasn't it? Even if it was ugly, it was joy. I'm listening to Megan Fernandez read from I Do Everything I'm Told. So I want to move from your diaspora poetics to talk about how it relates to ecological concerns. A lot of your poetry is eschatological, poetry of end times and how to live in end times. Even the craft classes you teach evoke this sense. One's called Crisis Joy Time, 
Another quoting Mina Alexander, who describes spring, the season of rebirth, as having the frank scent of survival. It seems like one of the questions you pose is, how do we live in an ongoing crisis? And that your answer, at least in part, has to do with changing one's relationship to time. Uh, For instance, in your description for the class you teach, that you open with Alexander's words, troubling our notion of spring, you say, how can such an image or encounter mark time when time itself has become recurrent? And your crisis joy and time class suggests strategies, I think, with the epigraphs you include. Frank O'Hara saying, in crisis, we must decide again and again whom we love. And Gwendolyn Brooks saying, in a package of minutes, there is this we, how beautiful. So as a first step to talking about living within something that seems like it's barreling toward doom, talk to us about time in relation to something that is ongoing, a crisis that defies time frames or perhaps now is time itself? First of all, I think we should ask ourselves whether we just like as a species, it's an unpopular opinion, but I'm going to give it, but like, should we survive? I mean, let's ask that question. We have not been great. And I think so there's this like kind of weird desire for the eternal that I think everybody has, which everyone's like, it's so human to want to continue. And I'm like, I'm not really sure if like, let's first try and analyze where that feeling comes from. We're not eternal. Most of us are not eternal. The species is not eternal. So there's also like kind of like taking a step back and being like, there's so much crisis rhetoric around the environment, around the disaster. And to me, that's a problem because doom is very romantic, David. It is so romantic. It is romantic. It is. We love things that aren't going to work out. And like, there's something kind of like insane to me about like people being like, I can't believe all this scientific fact and all these narratives and all these films and whatever are not working. I'm like, what exactly are we feeding when we're feeding this narrative about end times? Mm -hmm. In a way, what we're feeding is something really voyeuristic about that thing that we all have, which is wanting to see our own funeral but knowing we can't like as a species, but knowing we can't be there for that. That's a little bit, that's a little bit tragic. And there's something there that's a little bit under, like I think theorized. I would say that in terms of like crisis and the anxiety and anticipation, you know, I was reading this book called Cryopolitics at the time, which was really, there was an essay on it that was about how in the face of extinction, we've started to want to preserve DNA and preserve things. And to me, that is bananas. Like (laughs) we are preserving, we're already trying to preserve our future in anticipation of it ending instead of changing things so that we have a future. And that psychology of preservation in anticipation of extinction is actually deeply, deeply colonial, right? And I think the essay was about like the government wanting to, and, you know, I will come back to you if this is wrong. I want to get this right. The government wanting to like preserve the DNA of certain indigenous populations because the population was not going to exist anymore. But like, instead of just like actually being like, because we genocided them, you know, like there is that kind of separation of like cause and effect that we have here. 
I don't know. I think those are the two things. Like we love doom and there's something romantic about it. And I don't think that the way that we talk about crisis is really effective because we both want to be eternal and we want to end. So there's this sort of like also dual desire there. And then secondly, like the idea that we're trying to preserve because we know we're going to be extinct has this very violent kind of history, which is to say we cause the extinction of so many. The idea that we can turn it into a case study mirrors like the kind of colonial logs that that we've that we've enacted for so long you know i don't know if this is related i want to hear if you think it is but it just prompted this thought for me this question of this sort of weird juxtaposition between the desire to preserve and the romanticization of of barreling towards doom at the same time because if you look at the pandemic how much we did immediately shutting down international commerce all cultural events, sporting events, everything shut down, like creating entirely new expectations of populations about how they could move in the world and what access they had relatively quickly, globally. We did that all because we were motivated by the dream of returning to quote unquote normal. So like we were willing to turn the world upside down if in the end point we go back to exactly the same thing. But we could do all of those things to stop the world from dying. We know the answers and they're not necessarily technological to allowing other things to live on the planet that aren't us on their own terms. That if you could imagine human uh, initiative, like we did for that first year in the pandemic, which was all to preserve normal, to try to prevent doom instead um, yeah. it seems like it's, we're clearly, I want to say we're clearly capable and we're clearly incapable of walking it back. It seems at the same time, I don't know if this is even related or if you even relate to that framing of it. It's funny. I had a friend who once said to me, she's like, I think we all need to be also aware of the neoliberal imp- impulse to do something, to always do something, to the idea that we can save something. And I, I'm like holding that also in my head, which is that like the idea of extinction and end is such a big, overwhelming, existentially devastating idea that it's really easy to feel crushed and helpless and vulnerable on it underneath it. And then I think people like go through the cycle where they sort of feel guilty or like they don't have agency. And like, for me, I'm like, what are the ways in which I can improve in a small way, the life of the people like around me. And to me, that's a much more sustainable way of thinking about the well-being of the planet than to think about like how I have to change the behavior of corporations that I'm never going to change and I'm always going to fail at. And, you know, I was, it's funny, I just read in like Eileen Miles's, they did like this giant reading of the entire pathetic anthology. They have a new anthology out called pathetic literature. And among other things, it's about like losing Mm -hmm. (laughs) and like being a fool and like the image of the fool in literature and the person who says, We should want this, even though they're never going to get it. And actually how radical that is in pushing the limits of a person's imagination, which is where hope is. Hope can't exist unless you know 
that the limits of the imagination of what is possible for the world expands. And to me, the way that that can expand is sometimes telling people to like take their existential grief and go look at a painting, you know, that that's more effective. Yeah. Let me ask you about one of your projects in relationship to this suspicion around doing and saving, because you've not only talked about crisis disrupting time, you've also looked at ways to disrupt time. And I would imagine going to look at a painting could be one way to go disrupt time. But I'm thinking of your work, The Poetics of Suspense, which I think could also be called A Poetics of Suspension because it's about underwater suspension, perhaps connected to the Kronos quote from your Palermo sonnet. Um, you, you quote from Elena Pass' essay, Mediterranean Eco-Criticism, The Sea in the Middle, where she says that the Mediterranean requires an understanding of migratory pathways of humans and non-humans, circulations of global capital and toxic waste, narrative, elementary, and energy cultures, to name but a few. And then you talk about your project's desire to collapse geological, mythological, and contemporary temporalities through the medium of water, and water that you view as having many contradictory qualities. That being suspended is a sense of being held, a possible site of connection with time itself suspended, but it, it can also be a place of deferral or even a space of denial. And where you say that the Mediterranean's purgatorial and claustrophobic interiority makes it a useful framework to engage with climate despair. And ultimately in this essay, you bring it all back to poetry and a poetics. And I guess I hoped you could maybe orient us a little more to what this project is and and how you feel it's connected to climate change and to poetry for you. You know, it's funny, it's kind of about water, but it's also kind of about volcanoes. And I think poets like just love volcanoes. Like we have like volcano like <laughs> desires and are kind of fascinated by these ancient alive structures. And I was visiting Stromboli, which is an active volcano. And I was in a town on the other side of Stromboli, which is just like a population of 45 people. And I had interviewed a volcanologist that I know who also had climbed Stromboli. So we both had climbed this volcano and I am not an outdoors kid, David. I'm very much an indoors kid. And so what it took for me to climb this volcano is like a psychological kind of like poetic aspiration that I will never, ever understand. But what she was telling me basically, and this is in the essay, is that like you, that each rock, because it's like seven islands, the Aeolian Islands, right? Each rock you can tell, like they have a parental magma. So if you like do actually the, you know, whatever all the tests are in the rock, you can tell where these rocks in the ocean come from a certain volcano in the area. And there was something so kind of, to me, that's so compelling about that. The idea of like some object that you would just swim by in the bottom of the ocean, having this long history that even what seemed inanimate literally held inside it this whole history mm. and to me it's also the mediterranean is like a space of like so much important mythology right in the west but it's also you know like off the coast of catania like a place where like the mafia would like sink boats of things they didn't want people to find and it's also a space obviously of like a crisis right of, of refugees so like 
it was all of these things at once being being suspended together on the surface, but then even under the water where, you know, when you're underwater, you sort of, everything slows, it's dreamier. It's like being back in the womb, right? So there was something about the womb drive of being underwater and being held in that space that I felt like was allowing for an exploration of this multitude of both ecological, mythological, and also political histories that other people who I love and mentioned in the essay were doing work in, including the Leviathan film, which is a sensory ethnography film about a new Bedford fishing community where they put all these contact cameras on the surface of the water underneath the boat. And you can see, you know, something like a fishing boat from a completely different subject position of the non-human, right? Or what we might think of as the inanimate. And so the poetics, you know, that project was really trying to think about like both what we don't see underwater, how time is different kind of underwater, but also like the way in which these different scales of history were coming together, right? Underwater. So you had this very funny tweet when one of your poems was accepted for the New Yorker. Where you oh my said- God, you're bringing this up. <laughs> Hilarious. Okay. Yeah, it's actually good. It's good. I'm glad you're bringing it up. You said, quote, New Yorker acceptance. They didn't take the fisting poem, but still pretty stoked. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as I saw this, I knew I wanted you to read the fisting poem, but thinking about where it would be a good place for you to read it, I somehow kept coming back to the way this project of suspense explores the interiority of the Mediterranean Sea as also being a place where one might experience boundlessness and timelessness due to the underwater suspension. And in the fisting poem, the boundlessness around self, flirting with the limits of a body, which I think raises some questions that I want to ask you about after we hear it. But if you're willing, I would love to hear, I'm smarter than this feeling, but am I? And we can thumb we can thumb our noses at the New Yorker together. First of all, thank you, Kevin and Hannah, for taking the poem. You did very grateful, but yeah, this is um, yeah. I don't know. I haven't placed this poem yet, so I have a couple more weeks. If anybody wants to find it a home, although I don't know when this episode is coming out. Okay, this is called "I'm Smarter Than This Feeling," but am I? I watch your film about fisting orifice as cave, as grave, as starlit wormhole dug in space. You're obsessed by interiority, by the drunk shipwreck of it, by our inside rivers so alien we might as well call them Sweden or Pluto or 1973. And what's the difference? All of them are out of reach. I know we're both smarter than this feeling because we have talked about desire and her little games. I cry easily as I watch. You're old school. You want what O'Hara wanted, I think, which is a kind of boundlessness that won't kill anyone. Edging. You don't believe in bodies. Everyone is dust condensed by circumstances. You see what I was before I was a was, an am. What's your thing with smut, I ask? You say it's not smut, it's a love story. To be taken apart is as important as being put together. Near annihilation reminds you of a limit and ask yourself, who do you trust at your limit? At a party last night in Chinatown, I invent you walking through the door. It is warm and I smoke a cigarette on the balcony. Everyone is a producer and talking about Kathy Acker. And what would I say if I could? 
that I want our years to keep meeting. I don't want 1973 or a failed planet or even Sweden. Instead of saying this, I ask about your film. We put the art between us because the art exists and we do not. This is called sublimation. We puppet our meat in the gray twilight of the real world. And I pretend I'm not speaking to time. Been listening to Megan Fernandez read from I Do Everything I'm Told. I love this poem. I would be so... Honored. I love this poem too. <laughs> Who will publish it? No, I, I would be so honored if somehow this conversation leads to it, uh, finding a home outside the book too. I'm going to make a stretch around maybe connecting this to something else outside of your poetry, but you tell me. Um, but I'm curious about this other aspect of your writing outside of the book either way. And I see some crossovers and themes between it and your poetry. Thinking about the edging toward annihilation in the poem we just heard. Um, even thinking about the episodes of depersonalization that you've had and that you describe in the essay you wrote about Mina Alexander. You also have this essay called Transgenic Imagination that in another way is about crossing borders, not of nation, but of the body and of selfhood and of the species based on the evolutionary potential of mutation. And you look at a variety of writers, including Eleni Siclianos's Body Clock, of which you say, the paradigm of mutation pushes toward a more dynamic ecological model of distributed agency. More generally, you're examining both the phenomena of crossing and of surrogacy and how both become poetic tropes. You, you talk about the notion of becoming creaturely, where becoming creaturely speaks to the sense of leaping into uncertainty. The one line that really spoke to your poems for me was this one. The sight of the transgenic here concerns not only bodies within bodies, but also the taboo of foreign matter growing where it should not. And even though it's talking about crossing species boundaries, the taboo of foreign matter growing where it should not feels like it could also be speaking to a diasporic poetics. But I wondered how, if at all, the poetic texts you examine in this work, which you say engage with a certain kind of eco-techno-materialism and the notion of a creature containing the genomes of other creatures is not entirely unlike containing the fist of another person, um, how this manifests in your work, how you see the transgenic imagination in your work. Yeah, I don't think that's a stretch at all. And you're also like bringing up things from really different parts and, and studies of my life. So I would just want to say first, my undergrad degree is in molecular biology oh. and I worked on like mRNA transcripts when I was working at a biotech center before I got my PhD in English. And what that really did was like, show me the insides of things, right? Like I was like doing microarray analysis on these mRNA transcripts. And like when shit was bad, I could see like a piece of the RNA denatured. And I was like very aware of how fragile subjectivity was and how fragile phenotypic expression was based on one bad thing that went wrong, right? So I kind of went into my studies in literature really fascinated by about thinking about feminist science studies and queer science studies 
as looking at the ways in which subject formation was actually really distributed. And I was really in particular interested in Donna Haraway, Mm -hmm. who's important for this answer. Haraway wrote something like sex, infection, and eating are all old relatives. And I loved that because those are all times where we become in relation to somebody else. And there's like a risk whenever you become in relation to someone else, when you have sex with someone, it's so intimate and you become in relation with them. When you eat something, you're literally putting something in your mouth. When you have an infection, it's because something has taken over your body. So it's when boundaries are dissipated and you become what we might call a distributed subject, right? And to me, this idea that that is taboo, it has a long history, not just in queer studies, which maybe is more obvious, but also in critical race studies. So there's this great essay on disgust by Sarah, I think it's Sarah Ahmed or it's Sian Nai, I think it's Ahmed, where she opens with this story about Darwin and Darwin's sitting eating his steak or something and his steak is really raw and he has his servant there and his servant is a person of color and the servant touches the steak and is disgusted by the tenderness of the steak. Mm. And Darwin is disgusted that that person had touched the steak Mm. and it becomes really about contagion from a foreign other. So the idea that when we become in relation that like the logic of similitude versus the logic of difference is governing our relationship to being in relation with something or someone else that actually has this whole like kind of race politics to it also. Right. I love that. That's brilliant. And so like, I think about orifices a lot. I'm actually writing this like poet and like poets and writers ask me to do these craft capsules and they're just bananas. The first one is like about interracial sex The second one is about orifices and the third one is about love triangles. I have no idea if they're going to publish all of these. Hope they do. But the one one about orifices is important because it really is about like what it means to be penetrated by the other. And also it takes up Jamie Fitzpatrick's amazing poem called The Hole, in which the hole is really, is both a metaphorical and like a real hole. It's a brilliant poem. I highly recommend everybody read that poem. And it also kind of looks at like Paul Preciado's work on Testo Junkie, in which they describe in one scene having sex with their partner and that they're, I think they're using like a a strap on and like they describe it as a digging and like the digging, like as soon as I heard that, I'm like, oh my God, Seamus Heaney's poems are, is also about holes and orifices and whatnot. So I don't know. I just started thinking really expansively about sites of relationality often there are these kind of like, you know, the black hole of the cosmos. And like in this poem, watching my friends film, they're a great filmmaker and they they make these kinds of what they would describe as smut films. One of them is about looking through a telescope, also a kind of like hole into the universe. And then the telescope becomes a way of talking about like fisting and queer sex. And I was like, to me, you know, I was like, oh, what's your thing with smut? And they're like, it's, it's a fucking love story, you idiot. It's not smut. It's a, it's how to be in relation to someone. And it's what we do when we're boundless with each other, mm-hmm. which is the site of incoherence, like to, and there's a Lauren Berlant quote in the book, but it's also the site of like the, the deepest fucking intimacy, intimacy, you mm-hmm. know? Um, so yeah, I don't know if that answered the question. I don't yeah, know if it did. Way more than, way more than I dreamed you would answer. Actually, that was amazing. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the cover. I don't know if you were involved with it, but thinking about 
this transgenic trans species essay and the cover, which is a Polaroid of a rabbit turned strangely. I wondered if it signified something for you um, and, and what and how in relationship to the poems. It's funny you bring up the transgenic. One of the most famous transgenic examples is Ed Eduardo Cack's bunny, actually, in which he has sort of made some glow-in-the-dark bunny. I mean, it, it, it's quite monstrous. But actually, in terms of the cover, that really goes like all kudos to the designer at Tin House, to, to Bath, who gave me a few choices. And there was something really striking about it to me. I had said that I love Deneza Smith's homie. I love a neon I love the way that neon really captures a kind of time period. I'm, I'm a nineties kid. So like, to me, I, I love like anything that's giving me like saved by the bell vibes, but the bunny, I was like, Oh, am I a bunny? Like, no, like I want it to be a more ferocious animal, but then I, I kept seeing rabbits everywhere. And apparently I think somebody told me it's the year of the rabbit. So I want to say it's something really deep, but I just think the designer got something in the book that yeah. I didn't, that I was slower to catch up on. If I'm honest, I really like it. It's, I love the cover now. Yeah. I'm obsessed with it. Well, we can't end our conversation without talking about gender, which I think plays a big role in your work. You say of your last book, my book is called good boys, but it is powered by those who identify as women. And particularly in that book. And I think, a little bit to a lesser extent in this one, it skewers shitty men, not those who are necessarily overtly the enemy, the misogynistic and patriarchal by intent, but those who might consider themselves part of the us, part of this kinship, but do terrible things nonetheless. Like in every other way, you've taken this political and the world concern into questions of language as well. At the rumpus, you talk about how you like narrative poems that resist chronology with scenes that are outside of time. And you say that in graduate school, you had felt like narrative really belonged to men and to the colonizer, the people who decide the official story of history and aesthetics. And you were drawn to poets who were reimagining their relationship to storytelling. You mentioned Mina you mentioned Banu, uh, poets who do spatial and cognitive leaping. Perhaps we could even link this to your essay on the Portuguese singing tradition called Fado, that Fado means fate, a sense of too lateness, which reminds me of trying to puzzle out a way to be alive and thrive in a time that feels too late. But where you suggest that Traditional Fado is interested in distance, and in contrast, queer Fado, quote, is more interested in compression and collapsing the histories of conquest and nation-making. What might it mean to explore an imagination that is polytemporal, that can undo violent historicization and world-build through a playful fabulation of gender, erotic performance, lyrics, audience, sung rhyme, and vocal accentuation, and that is not situated in rigidity. This is a poetics. So returning to the beginning where we talked about a shift you were experiencing between your last two books, at least a subtle shift between speed and messiness and constraint and form, has there been any shift for you between books and how you are enacting or engaging with gender? 
and and any thoughts you might have about gender in relationship to poetics and and narrative that this might spark it's interesting there's a poem about abortion in the book and there's also a poem called masculinity in the book and i think one thing that really surprised me although i'm not really sure why it did is how many messages i got from men about both of those poems that were just like incredibly violent and offensive and like i'm just not used to anybody reading any poem you know like maybe a couple people like but i i don't know why i was so surprised i was surprised to be surprised and i also think there's this kind of idea of inevitability of it where people who i would mention it to would be like oh yeah well you know if you say these things you know the culture wars and I'm like, masculinity is a kind of subject position, which really doesn't, I think, in my opinion, people don't think about it enough as a subject position. So if we have like a school shooter that's out here, there are so many ways in which the media wants to be like, they were of this demographic or that demographic, but like, I'm like, and yet they were all people who identify as men, you know? Mm-hmm. And that is something that is so taken for granted, these kind of violent, fragile violent energies that belong to or that are part of socialized masculinity cis masculinity i will say that it go that are just unquestioned and that require a lot of thought and require a lot of undoing and untethering and um you know y'all been acting up that's what <laughs> that's what i i'd say and continue to act up and yeah. will continue to act up you know so i'm not sure if there's so much like a shift in the way that i'm thinking like about gender you know except that i think that of gender is something that is not determined by sex you know that is a clarification like when i it's really important i think that we say that But, you know, masculinity itself is something that I always feel like is often in the room that doesn't know itself in the way that whiteness can sometimes be in the room and not know itself. And by the way, in the way that a lot of things that we all are can be in the room and not know itself, but the level of self-deception that masculinity allows is like sometimes truly, truly incredible to me. If I was part of a demographic of of that somebody who identified with cis masculinity like i really would be taking some time to think about what are the things i can't know i don't see about myself i mean there's also i forget who the quote is i think it's maybe wolf who says something like you know men have been writing about that circle on the back of women's necks that they can't see forever but it's time for women to be writing about that you know that circle on the back of men where they cannot see right Mm -hmm. And yeah, the responses to those two poems, like just walking around in the city being like, I wonder if somebody knows my address. Even the fact that I had to think about that, even like in a small way, you know, was really disturbing to me. Like, this is just something that a lot of people who identify as women have to deal with all the time, which is like constant threat against something that's so fragile that a fucking poem is like, like, is like putting you into like a spiral, you know? Yeah. Like nonsense yeah i was gonna suggest we hear the poem rilke is that a strange one to read now no i i love that poem um this is called rilke and it comes in a sort of response to rilke's poem orpheus eurydice and hermes and one thing i really love about rilke is that in in his translation it's a translation i think is the galway canal translation or the Franz right one, I forgot which one it is, but in his understanding of the Orpheus and Eurydice myth, which is a big part of the book also, he's like, 
there's almost a way in which he's like Eurydice was indifferent to Orpheus because the dead are indifferent to us Mm. and also Orpheus maybe was like a little bit of a fuck boy I mean it doesn't say it like that but like his like argument was like he kind of knew you know Mm. um okay Rilke no one in history has ever been as smart as their husband I think of the myths where men drown and women sit in the waiting rooms of the underworld. See, I think Orpheus knew, had always planned to turn back, and homegirl knew too. That's a kind of smart to know what you know, to know what your man can and will do, and how it will later be told. I prefer your kind of smart, my friend said, by which she means dumb joy. Hey, it's true. I flip Hades' den and get people in a room. I'm good at a party and even better at dead ends. When I lose a job at a women's college to a dude, I mourn in gray silk for days, play Blanche and feign distress, wander with cigarette holes in my dress, you know, for character, to impress, to make sure I'm convincing enough to be overlooked. Once my students got locked in a room and I jumped from a window to let them out, What mama energy, one student said, and I gave her a C. Baby, I'm Cersei. I hold down the island. I don't drown my own men in the sea. I tidy up the underworld, and down here there's a tunnel to hell where we wave each to each. We bury waterlogged peaches deep. We refuse to die in this underneath. When the detective breaks in and asks which way he went, I take a drag or sip. I pivot indifferent. I curtsy ankles in check. I know how to turn around. I know who waits in this clockless eternity and who is allowed to drown before we go out megan fernandez with hopefully another very short poem since we're talking about narrative and gender in a conversation you had with alexi perry cox they mentioned that you have an ongoing novel called zelia a breakup story between a chef and a writer told in two time periods if that's true now that you're working on something more squarely in the story space. Can you tell us anything about it in relation to the spatial and cognitive leaping you admire in feminist diasporic writers who are working against chronology and story, even if they are themselves creating story at the same time? Yeah, and I should tell you that I am am not an expert prose writer. So I will say that in terms of a continuity between the poetics and the prose, one is that it's really funny, I think. And I just think that sad shit should be also funny. And I think that's also a way of like thinking about time since we can often laugh at things when we have some distance from them, right? But I think that in a way part of maturity is also when that like being able to laugh at yourself in real time, you know? So there's a little bit of a collapse there. It's like something devastating happens at the opening of the book. And like the, the speaker is just immediately like, like going to like a a bunch of rabbis and priests and not a religious person at all. And just trying to like, you know, asking the same question. And the question that she asks is like, is wanting the same thing as you age always a failure of growth? And they're just like, do you want to join the congregation? Like, what are you trying to be here? And so I think like in terms of time, it's trying to think about like, is growth always changing what you want, you know? And what happens when you don't change what you want and what happens when you don't, you do repetition compulsion and what you learn from it is that that's just who you are. And maybe that's not necessarily going to change. And there 
are a lot of people I think who are really influential for that book, but probably this is so annoying because obviously she's a genius, but like, you know, like I write, I, I just love Ferrante. I think she's probably like the greatest writer of our age. And she's certainly the greatest writer of how to write about the intimacies between women, mm-hmm. where that intimacy is like, they're, they're in love. They're not in love. You know, they're sisters. They're not sisters. They're friends. They're not friends. Like there is something really kind of contradictory, competitive, loving, erotic, familial about the intimacy between her two main characters in the Neapolitan, you know, novels that I just found so true to a lot of the relationships I have in my life. And I would say like, that to me is like in the spirit of a kind of feminist writing where you have all this political history going on outside of the interiority, but the interiority is like its own turbulent zone in which like the outside cannot even contest with the inside, even though what's happening on the outside is huge and geopolitical and moving and giant. Mm. Well, I would love to go out with the poem Malaika if you're willing to. Um, yeah, absolutely. Malaikan Swahili means angel. And it is a poem I heard growing up all the time. And um, it's a Swahili folk song. Malaika means angel. Means angel, sorry, I'm broke. Means will you marry me anyway? is sung at every gathering in my family. Sometimes the elders just break into song and all the kids roll their eyes or now that everyone is dying, tentatively sing along to the lyrics, comes from Tanzania, is at home in the mouth of my father, was sung as we lowered my aunt in the fire, returns you to the earth, means did I miss my chance, sister, means you disturb the heart, Baby, you disturb my heart. Angel, it's you. Thank you, Megan. This was great to spend this time together today. Thank you so much, David. We are talking today to Megan Fernandez about her latest book from Tin House, I Do Everything I'm Told. been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. You can find out more about Megan Fernandez's work, both her poetry and prose, at meganfernandez.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, consider joining the Between the Covers community as a listener-supporter. Every supporter can join our brainstorm of future guests, and every listener-supporter receives the supplementary resources with each conversation of things discovered while preparing, things referenced during the conversation, and places to go and explore once you're done listening. Additionally, there are a variety of other potential gifts and rewards, including the bonus audio archive. The Tin House Early Readership Subscription, getting 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, to a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. 
or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Beth Steidel in the art department, Becky Kramer and Jay Michelle in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog et Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. Thank you.